It's time for Herd Mentality, the weekly episode where you control the discussion today on Locked On Bills. You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Wednesday to you, and thank you for making Locked On Bills your first listen every day, or if you're joining us on the YouTube channel, your first watch every day. It will be herd mentality today on the podcast. Some really good stuff to get to, and real quick, just a little note. I know that I have a lot of people I still need to respond to that have sent in questions, takes comments for me to respond to on an episode of Herd Mentality, but with it being Josh Allen week last week and Herd Mentality being completely centered around Josh Allen, we got a little bit out of our normal sequencing here where I had to push some stuff uh, that would have been for last week to this week, and the stuff for this week is kind of going to get pushed to next week, and I might take some of those questions and holster them for the Tackling the Tough Questions series that are coming up. So uh, if I haven't gotten back to you, just give me a little bit of time here. I'm catching up on some of the administrative components of doing this podcast, and so hang tight, and I'll get back to you. But we do have a bunch of great stuff to get into today on the podcast. The first one is a great question from Andrew, who says, there's no question that Poyer and Hyde really came into their own in Buffalo. Fortunately for us, they grew, they embraced the process, they embraced their roles on the defense, and developed into elite safeties. But this wasn't the case before they came to the Bills. Can you explain how these two were able to become elite for us, I'm sure there are many variables, but was it McDermott, Frazier, Butler? Was it the system? Was it the barbell wings? How do we replicate their growth, their impact, and that recipe for success in our safety depth and in other positions around them? Is that even possible? Awesome question here. And, and it's fair to point out that you know Jordan Poyer was on a couple of different teams, really never materialized into much with the Eagles or the Browns. You know, signed a very modest deal to come to Buffalo. Micah Hyde, an original draft pick of the Green Bay Packers, I think fifth round, if I'm not mistaken, became a nice player for their defense, but they didn't even offer him an extension. And they both walked and came to Buffalo and created the best, and I mean this, the best, objectively, the best safety tandem in the NFL. The best. And that's pretty unusual, right? You wouldn't expect that to happen. So if I were to highlight four things that stand out to me about why this happened and how this happened, first of all, I give a lot of credit to Brandon Bean and his staff for good pro scouting. You know, we talk about draft picks and college scouting and that piece of the of the equation of team building, but we don't do a good enough job of recognizing good pro scouting. You know, it's easy to sign a marquee free agent and get good results. The hard part is finding those bargain bin free agents and making it work for your team after another team said, you know what, we're good, they can walk. So number one, good pro scouting. Identifying those players and bringing them in. Understanding how the skill sets that they have complement each other. I think that's an, a, ver it's a very important dynamic of a safety pairing. You want two players that can play well off of each other. And for some teams, that's having a true free safety, a one-high center fielder, going to play in deep alignments. 
and a strong safety that you're willing to play down in the box and give you a size player, a force player. For some teams, that's interchangeable safeties, guys that can do either role, can play some man coverage in the slot, can play split zones, deep line, whatever, right? Like every team's going to have a different vision for what they want from their safeties. And so, first of all, good pro scouting by the Bills. And number two, just understanding what they want for their defense and how the skill sets of Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer complement each other, where I think they're very interchangeable players. I don't think either one has limitations. And because of that, because you can do anything with both, man, it opens up a lot for your defense and how you space the field and coverage. So those are the first two things, good pro scouting and an understanding of their skill sets and how they complement each other and what you want them to be for your defense. Number three is just the maturity of those two players. Two guys that had a big-time chip on their shoulder, right? I mean, you know that about both of these guys. Fifth-round pick for Micah Hyde, overlooked by the Packers. Jordan Poyer on a couple of different teams. Had a really good career at Oregon State. Wound up being like a seventh-round pick. Guys that were mature but had a chip on their shoulder, and they had something to prove. So you combine them in so many different ways from a skill set, from a mental mindset perspective, and you really have a nice pairing. And then I think it's also Sean McDermott's resume, right? Like he's done so well throughout his entire career of getting high-level production out of safeties that really weren't productive elsewhere. Mike Mitchell, Kurt Coleman, Poyer, Hyde. A lot of names. That's off the top of my head. And I think Sean McDermott has worked with them to make sure that they are unbelievably prepared. They understand how to leverage routes and leverage the defense and what the scheme is designed to do and how they all fit together with the entire back seven. It's easy to talk about these players in isolation, but how about the entire back seven? And that includes Edmonds, Milano, Taron Johnson, Trey White, whoever that CB2's been, typically Levi Wallace. Now we're really excited for Kyer Elan. But then Poyer and Hyde with that and how that all works together for how you could space the field. And they all benefit from each other because they're smart and they understand what the scheme is designed to do. And so I think it's just good process. It's inserting the right players into the right situation and they flourish. And they benefit from each other. So that's a long answer. And I hope I answered the question, but that's that's the stuff that comes to mind when this was presented. Next one comes from Jeff, who says, been thinking of the O-line a lot lately. Yeah, you and me both, Jeff. Which of the returning starters will benefit the most from the scheme Aaron Cromer traditionally runs? Man, I don't know if it's fair to say this, but all of them? All of them are going to benefit from Aaron Cromer. First of all, because Aaron Cromer has tailored techniques for all of his offensive linemen. He understands that Spencer Brown is a tackle, Deion Dawkins is a tackle, but they have really different body types. How can you tailor the techniques to get the most effective run blocking and pass blocking out of these players? Roger Saffold, Ryan Bates, they're both guards, completely different body types and ways that you would think that they win, right? And so he tailors the technique. It's not a one-size-fits-all. This is how we do it. He's willing to understand his personnel and understand how to get the most out of them. Now, there's core principles. There's non-negotiables. 
but he's not going to ask every player to do everything the same exact way. I've had a lot of really good conversations with Aaron Cromer, and I'm going to spend a lot of time with him next weekend at O-Line Masterminds, and I can't wait to learn more about this. But I remember when I talked to him at the Combine for a long time, we went through so much, and he showed me a lot of different techniques. He demonstrated the technique on me. And I came away with, a, with an even greater appreciation. I knew Aaron Cromer. I knew what he's accomplished in the NFL, the players he's developed, how good the offensive lines and run games have been that he's influenced. But what I gained an appreciation from my time with him was just how willing he was to understand individual players and how to get the most out of them. And we went, we went through a lot, and I cannot wait to spend more time with him next weekend and share what I can with you, you know, in the following weeks. And that'll be the week I have scheduled right now. I'm going to be in o, at O-Line Masterminds, I think like the 8th and the 9th of July. So that next week, you know, I have planned uh, tackling the tough questions regarding the Bills offensive line, and I can't. I, I plan on dumping a lot of what I learned there into that conversation. So good stuff is coming on that front. But I, I, I legitimately think they're all going to benefit. I think the scheme is going to be better. There's going to be more angles, advantageous angles baked into how the offensive line adjusts based on alignment. You know, I think the the Brian Dable, Bobby Johnson run scheme was predicated on math, right? Like, oh, we have good math. We have good numbers. We should be able to run the ball and it work. There weren't enough built-in checks to allow these off- offensive linemen to adjust on the fly based on alignment and get good looks. And then the other thing that I've, I've, I've said as often as I could about this Bill's offensive line and how it's engineered for this season is that there's athleticism across the board. All of these dudes are big-time athletes, left to right, all of them. You're no longer, and I, and I respect Daryl Williams. You guys know that. I respect the hell out of Daryl Williams. Good football player. Somebody should sign him to be a starter for them, and they'll be really happy. But you're not hiding a Daryl Williams. You're not hiding a John Feliciano. You're not hiding a Quentin Spain. Guys that are limited athletes. And because they're limited athletes, it restricts what you can do, whether they're play side or backside. You have to compensate for that. You don't have as much range. You can't do the zone runs. That's why the Bills offensive line and the Bills run game, when they tried to do zone, didn't work. It's because they didn't have the right mix of guys up front, the right skill sets up front, because they always had to compensate for some very underwhelming athletes, like a Quentin Spain, like a John Feliciano, like a Daryl Williams. So you have better techniques, a better scheme and vision, and more athleticism. Everyone's going to benefit from Aaron Cromer and his influence on this Bills offensive line and run scheme. Next one from Sam. My question is if there is a battle for the last wide receiver spot between Isaiah McKenzie and Tavon Austin, how much do you think McKenzie's relationship with teams, fans, media will factor into the decision? I think it will. I think it will significantly. And I do think that there's a path for both of these guys to be on the roster. But when you have a guy that's meant a lot to the team, from a lot of different angles, who's a good glue guy, a good locker room guy, a guy that's been willing to play his part, that's going to matter. And I think you saw this with a guy like John Feliciano. Not to keep dogging on John Feliciano, but I think he's a really good example of a guy that had good relationships with all of those things, the team, the fans, the media, right? 
Fans love John Feliciano and the energy and the edge that he brought to the offensive line. You know, he would say crazy stuff to the media. The media liked him, and his teammates loved him. Josh Allen loved John Feliciano. But at the end of the day, was he really a good player? No. He was a below-average player. You can check the receipts on stuff I've said about John Feliciano. I'm not just giving you these thoughts because he's now with the Giants. I wasn't super high on bringing him back because he's limited in terms of what he does, but he mattered in a lot of different other ways, and I think the Bills were somewhat committed to him because of that. His limitations were obvious, but his intangibles mattered, and I think you can look at Isaiah McKenzie and understand that there's limitations here, but some of the ancillary components, some of the intangibles help bring up his value to the team. So yes, I think, Sam, you have a fair point, and I would agree that that will influence that decision. This episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questions like, is your Odyssey an LX or an EX, and wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer, choosing the only brand their warehouse happens to carry. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. Save time and save money when using Rock Auto. Why would you choose to spend 30%, 50%, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or a car dealership? They have everything you can need. Brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Make sure you write Locked On in there. How did you hear about us, Box Soda, that we sent you? They have amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need over at rockauto.com. Next one today comes from Michael. Michael says, I was listening to your Monday podcast talking about the Bills' recent problems with punt returners. You made a comment about how returning punts is a lot harder than kickoffs, and you would rather have a good punt returner since any running back can go back and return kicks. While I understand it's harder to field a punt and you have a lot more decisions to make, let it bounce, fair catch, but I'm curious, what about returning kicks makes it hard that a good punt returner couldn't do both? I feel like if a player can master returning punts, they should have an easier time with kickoffs. Thanks again, and as always, go Bills. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's fair to say that. If you if you can get all the, the stuff done that requires you to be a good punt returner, you should be able to be a kick returner. And I think that's why you see punt returners that also kick return, but there are some, not even some, there's a lot of kick returners that don't punt return. The problem is the Bills haven't gotten the, the punt returner stuff figured out. And I kind of talked just a little bit more about this. There's, it's just a different skill set for a punt returner. Just think about just the basic function. A kick returner, you field the football with none of the opposition around you. You get a running start. You know, you're not making contact with anybody for 15, 20, 25 yards sometimes. As a punt returner, you're a sitting duck. You're standing still, and there's people around you immediately. So it's a different type of kick, a tougher ball to catch, right? A kickoff compared to a punt. And just the nature of the play is really, really different. Ball skills matter way more as a punt returner. As a kick returner, you can muff a kick return and let it bounce four times and pick it up, and you're still going to probably be able to get five to ten yards. As a punt returner, if you don't punt, if you don't field that ball cleanly and you muff it, you're in big trouble because the opposition is going to be right there to pick it up. So ball skills matter way more. You mentioned the decision-making is way harder. It's way more involved as a punt returner. And then just it, it's just because of that, it's different physically and mentally. 
So I, like I said, I do believe pretty much any running back should be able to go back there and, and handle a kick return. Punt returner, man, you got to have a certain skill set and you have to have a certain mentality to be able to get that done with consistency. Adam says, do you think we are more matchup-based actives versus inactives this year? Many Bills content creators and media members keep saying that this is such a deep roster all around. We know which spots are basically locked and for game day inactives, et cetera. But those bottom of the roster guys, like, is there one week where Tavon Austin is active over Stevenson or McKenzie or Shaq Lawson versus one of the DTs? Or do you think we see the same guys basically regardless of matchup? Well, first of all, injuries are going to dictate a lot of that. But if we answer this question through the lens of, okay, everyone's healthy, I think in general you can expect a running back to be inactive, right? That third running back, they're going to address two running backs. I think of the five defensive ends that we expect to make the team, Von Miller, Greg Rousseau, Boogie Basham, A.J. Epinesa, Shaq Lawson, I think one is inactive every week, assuming everyone's healthy. I think the Bills will roster nine offensive linemen in dress eight on a weekly basis. The least versatile player will be inactive. If the Bills keep three tight ends, I think typically a third tight end will be inactive. And then probably a linebacker. So if everyone's healthy, it's that. But yeah, I think any any team should be mindful of matchups. If you think Shaq Lawson is one of your best run-stopping de- run defensive ends, dress him over whoever you think is lesser, Boogie Basham or Epinesa or whatever. If you feel like you want to run more 12 personnel, dress your third tight end because you want to have that backup contingency in place. So yes, I do think every team is thinking about the matchups as much as they can based on who's available because of injuries. But if everyone's healthy, I think that's kind of the mindset I would have regarding the inactives. Kyle says it's pretty accepted that Tremaine Edmonds is at his best when he's kept clean, like every linebacker. That's me inserting that. Every linebacker is best when they're kept clean and allows his athleticism and range to take over. Do you think the revamping of the D-line serves a lot like the stacking of the wide receiver core for a young Josh Allen in that one, it makes the team better, and two, is going to allow the front office to isolate the variable for the quarterback of our defense? I'm a neutral fan on 49, but feel like if he doesn't turn into a game record this ups, upcoming season, it'll be tough to envision him becoming that player. So first of all, later this week, probably Thursday or Friday, well, not probably, today's Wednesday, so definitely Thursday or Friday, you're going to get the Tremaine Edmonds podcast from me where I really kind of break him down. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an entire podcast on him. So I don't want to give too much away, but I'll say three things in response to this. First of all, you have a fair point in the D-line. It has not been perfect. They've tried. They've wanted it to look a certain way, but this is certainly the best group that Tremaine's going to have in front of him. Just like I said about Josh Allen, this is the best offensive line he's going to have in front of him to date. This is the best D-line that's going to be in front of Tremaine Evans to date. And, and yes, there is an element of that that should help him to showcase his true skill set this year at, at, at its maximum capacity. Secondly, and I'll expand a lot on this on the podcast later this week, but the Bills aren't a team that prioritizes being plus one in the box. They're not a team that prioritizes being plus one in the box, and that puts a lot more on your linebackers, a lot more. Number three, I think the, the, the most important 
piece of the Tremaine Emmons conversation. Well, is for, well, first of all, it's what he does this year. That's most important. But even if he's the same player we we saw last year, it's a dollars thing. If if you if the Bills re-sign Tremaine Emmons to eighteen million dollars a season, you're going to feel a lot different about that than if it's ten or twelve. So the dollars are going to matter a lot. And again, I got a, I got like an entire podcast worth of stuff to say about Tremaine Emmons, so I'm going to save a lot of that for later in the week. But just a, from you know just a quick bird's eye view, those are three things that come to mind here based on the question that Kyle asked. Owen says, a bit of a question I can't really get my head around how to ask. I think our D has improved this year without a doubt. The Bills are better at edge, sturdier in the interior, depth at linebacker, and with Kyir and hopefully Trey back in the secondary, that looks good. However, the teams we're playing this year and the quarterbacks we have to play are better this year without a doubt. So how do you quantify that, and how would you judge improvement in the D this year when realistically we'll give up more points? Owen, oh, this is a great point, and, and I, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I flew back today, the day that I'm recording this, Tuesday, with Kyle Krabs. And Kyle Krabs, my co-host with the Draft Dudes podcast, also the host of the Locked on Dolphins podcast, huge Miami Dolphins fan. And we talked a lot of Bills and Dolphins on that plane ride today. And we were talking about the Bills' defense and how good it was last year. And I, I said, you know, Kyle, one of the things that we have to be mindful of with the Bills' defense this year versus last year is that last year they didn't play any good quarterbacks. And they played Pat Mahomes, Tom Brady, and who? Who was the third best quarterback the Bills played last year? Ryan Tannehill? Matt Ryan? I mean, they played a bunch of rookies and, and second-year players and backups. And so, yeah, the Bills' defensive success last year was absolutely inflated because they played bad quarterbacks for uh, you know most of the season, almost all of the season. Now, they were dominant, and that matters, right? It's not like they were just pretty good against bad quarterbacks. They were dominant against bad quarterbacks. But I think the way that we're going to be able to measure this Bills' defense is because I, I, I expect statistical regression. I do. So that's not going to be the way that you're going to measure it. You're going to look and see the Bills are going to give up more points, more yards. But do they play better against better quarterbacks? Because last year when the Bills faced the Bucks, when they faced the Chiefs in the playoffs, defense got a little bit exposed. Now those are two situations where you didn't have Trey White, right? The Bills looked a hell of a lot better against the Chiefs in Week 6 than they did in the playoffs, defensively. So do they play better against better defenses? That's what I'll be looking for. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all your betting needs and sports information. Find all the latest sports developments, league reviews, and news, including Major League Baseball, Football's Futures, eSports. They've got it all over at BetOnline.net. It's your number one spot for your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. It is the fastest and easiest way to check in, check in on all your favorite sports and events, including MMA, boxing, and golf. They also have MLS. I actually bet on a MLS game a couple weeks ago. It was really fun. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and the action. It's bet online, and it's where the game starts. Got a few more to get to here today. The next one comes from Jay Stamp, who says, 
What if the offense stalled out some because Dayball was the conservative one and McDermott wants to throw it all over the field? Also assuming this to be true, could this unlock another level with Josh Allen assuming that Dorsey is like-minded to McDermott? Well, I think most people would agree that Brian Dable was the the aggressive mind, right? The pass-happy mind, more so than Sean McDermott. You heard Sean McDermott repeatedly say that we have to be a two-dimensional offense and we need to make other teams one-dimensional. Now, I think Sean McDermott has evolved a lot as a coach in terms of being aggressive, right? The Sean McDermott game manager that we watched in 2017 and 2018 and even 2019, different than what we saw over the last couple of years. That goes hand-in-hand with Josh Allen's growth. You can't just be aggressive to be aggressive. You have to have the belief that you can actually convert. You think the Bills' 2018 offense was equipped to go for it at the rate that they did in 2020 and 2021? No. So I think McDermott has adapted and evolved as his team has proven more. But I I I would be surprised if what you're suggesting through this question that Dable was the conservative one and McDermott was the aggressive one, I would be surprised if that's true. And I don't want to I want I don't want this to be twisted, right? I don't think that Sean McDermott is conservative. I think he's conservative when he needs to be, and there's times where he's frustrated me with some conservativeness, and, and that's certainly what I'm referring to as the AFC championship game in twenty twenty. But I like his evolution. But I'd also be very, very surprised if it was as you stated it, to be completely honest with you. Kathleen says, question on respectful relationships with rivalries. Share about a friend or family member who cheers for a rival team, the Pats, Dolphins, Jets, and how do you keep your friendship respectful even through tough losses? My dad is a diehard Patriots fan, and we have genuine respect and try to be happy for one another regardless of outcomes. My parents even babysat our one- and three-year-olds so we could drive from Massachusetts to Buffalo for the playoff game last year in the freezing cold. When we got home, my dad gave me the biggest hug and said, I'm happy for you. Yeah, I think this is really good. My my best friend in the whole world, Kyle Krabs, is a Miami Dolphins fan. He loves the Dolphins. Loves them. He loves them like I like the love the Bills. And that's obviously a big dynamic of our relationship. But Kyle was the best man in my wedding. He I was the best man in his wedding. I'm honored to be his daughter's godfather, right? We're tight. And he's a Miami Dolphins fan, and I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. And right now, that's looking pretty good for me, right? I've, I've had the upper hand here over the last several years. But the mindset that I have with it is I want to treat him how I would want to be treated. I want to respond to him the ways that I would hope he would respond to me if it were the other way around. And I always try to make sure, regardless of its, if it's a friendship relationships within my own family, that football is healthy for me in my life, that all the good parts of being a fan 
I embrace and cling to and all the bad parts of being a fan where it can really be a divisive thing, I get rid of it. I don't want anything to do with it. Make sure that football fandom is a positive in your life and continuously check yourself. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Remember the way you felt when people clowned on Josh Allen for the first couple of years that he was in Buffalo. And then ask yourself, are you doing that for Jets fans right now about Zach Wilson? Are you doing that right now for Patriots fans about Mac Jones? Are you doing that right now for Dolphins fans about Tua Tungabailoa? They're embracing that, that optimism, right? That they're going to put it all together and be really good players. And it's going to be their answer at franchise quarterback. And of course, as a Bills fan, you're hoping that doesn't happen. But you don't have to sit there and express that to them. Because you didn't like it when people did that about Josh Allen. Now, obviously, you get to dunk on it, right? And obviously, Josh has answered all of his critics. And I would say it's unlikely that all three of those guys are going to turn out to be the answer for those teams. But treat people how you want to be treated. It's that simple. You want it to be rubbed in your face that your team lost the game to a rival and your friends or family members are gloating over that? You want that to happen to you? No, you don't. So don't do that to other people. Make sure football is healthy for you and that it's always a positive in your life regardless of the results of games. Last one today comes from Ed who says, I enjoyed listening to the Josh Allen Week Roundtable discussion. I love the differing voices and perspectives singing Josh's praises. The drought in our pile of average to below average quarterbacks were mentioned, which makes me so grateful the Bills found their guy in number 17. I began to wonder which of the past starters could even make it make one of the recent rosters as QB2, QB3, or as a practice squad player. In other words, which of our former starters would Joe Marino consider in a backup role for the Bills since Josh Allen took over? Below is the list of starters I took from Wikipedia from 2000 forward. Assume that the former quarterbacks are playing in their prime. That's important. I included Tyrod, even though the drought ended with him under center. And he gives me the list. And I want to kind of very quickly talk through this list. And understand that we're talking about backup quarterbacks. A lot of these players are probably better than Case Keenum or or, or Mitchell Trubisky, right? In their prime. And I would say for a lot of these players, they weren't necessarily ever inserted into a great situation for them to become a good player. I've, I've talked about this before. Teams bust quarterbacks more than quarterbacks bust teams, and we don't want to admit it. A lot of talented football players here, but you know they didn't. They weren't in a great situation. So, real quickly, there's 15 quarterbacks here. Rob Johnson, hard pass. I, I just don't like the way he played the game. I do not like the way Rob Johnson played football. Doug Flutie, I would be tempted to say him, but I just, I don't know. He's he's got limitations. He's got limitations that would bother me. Alex Van Pelt, he could be a QB3. I don't want him to be my backup. Drew Bledsoe, that guy had a great career. I'm not going to pick Drew Bledsoe because he can't move. He's a statue. And I've got guys that can move around that bring other intangibles that I appreciate. Number five, J.P. Lozman. I think J.P. would really benefit from working with Josh Allen. But nah, it's going to be a pass for me. Kelly Holcomb, that's a pass for me. Trent Edwards. Hard pass. Brian Brown, hard pass. EJ Manuel, I'm interested. I'm interested. 
think he'd benefit from getting a chance to play with Josh Allen. Thad Lewis, no thank you. Jeff Toole, no thank you. Kyle Orton, I think a lot about Kyle Orton. He's high on my list of, of options here, but he's not the one I'm picking. Tyrod Taylor, Tyrod, Tyrod Taylor's high on my list of options, but he's not the one I'm picking. like the mobility, but sometimes with, with Tyrod, what frustrated me was the throws he wouldn't make. Got to pull the trigger. Got to throw the ball. Nathan Peterman, no. The answer's Fitz. The answer's Ryan Fitzpatrick every time. That's a guy I want. I like the mindset. Like his approach, I know he's not the most physically gifted, but that's just the guy you want on your team. So of all these players in their prime, give me fits. Give me fits. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us here today on the podcast. Awesome slate of questions. I got a ton of good stuff holstered. Again, like I said at the beginning, I got a lot of people to get back to. Give me a second and I will do so. Uh, tomorrow on the podcast or at some point this week, like I said, the Tremaine Edmonds episode is coming. Got another episode this week, so a lot of Bills discussion coming in this way. It's going to be awesome next week as well. I have a lot of fun stuff planned. Like I said, this dead period where there's not a, anything going on in the NFL world, this is like my favorite stretch on this podcast. I love the games, obviously. I love the draft and, and, and the offseason, like the, the team building, the free agency, all that stuff's really, really fun. But I love being challenged to be creative with what we do on this podcast, and, and I'm excited to deliver for you all the way through. So make sure you're subscribed. Would love it if you took a second to rate, review, and share the podcast. Have a great rest of your day, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.